Welcome to Lasso Lessons. I'm Mike Merrill. And I'm Kathy Buckman. And today we're talking about Season 2, Episode 8 of Ted Lasso, Man City. We open on Dr. Sharon at home speaking with her own therapist. And this, to my understanding, is basically something all therapists do. They speak with a typically a more senior therapist about personal issues and their interactions with their patients as well. From her own notes, her therapist recites that Sharon has said, Ted Lasso is driving me crazy. Dr. Sharon confirms that Ted continues to be, to use a freighted term with psychoanalytical resonance, resistant. Still pushing back, still covering over any rising truth with humor. Her therapist notes that in their mutual refusal to be vulnerable, Sharon and Ted share a trait. He uses humor to deflect. You use your intelligence. She tells Sharon that to make progress with Ted, Sharon will need to let her guard down and meet him halfway. Well, I have a lot more to say about therapists talking to therapists and coaches talking to coaches. So I'll say a lot more about that when we get to the second half of the show. And basically now we see her packing up and this gives us a chance to see that not only does she have an iPhone, but what looks to be an Apple Air laptop, AirPods, and even an iPad Pro. Apple is definitely getting their money's worth here. Yeah. And it's not just Ted Lasso. I've watched some other Apple shows and this just must be part of what you have to agree to make an Apple show. The Apple show Invasion is the same way. In fact, a lot of Beats headphones in that show. Oh, severance, not so much, but maybe they don't want to be involved with a dystopic world like that quite, quite the same way. Yeah, the tech in severance is very strange. So, yeah. Everything in severance is very strange. Maybe it's another workplace show that we'd want to do a podcast about someday. <laughs> oh, my. Yes. You, me and David Lynch. Well, there you go. We'll talk about that one. Yeah. David Lynch meets the office it might be the tagline for that. All right. We see Sharon get on her bike and make her way through Richmond, on her way to work, we assume, when she is met by a car going the other direction. Her bike and body sprawled out on the street. We hear the familiar samba ring of her iPhone and see that it's Ted calling. It's hard not to read this moment somewhat symbolically that just when Sharon needs to be vulnerable, and it is actually in this moment physically very vulnerable, Ted is reaching out to her. Ted will eventually retrieve Sharon from the hospital, and he'll play back some phone calls that she has left for him under the influence of sedation. And I think this whole thread allows Ted to see the sometimes forbidding Sharon more fully, as a more full person, one with weaknesses and vulnerabilities, and it may make it easier for him to accept her help. And it probably doesn't hurt that when he visits Sharon's house, he sees her stow away a number of empty liquor bottles. Like Ted, she may be using alcohol to defend herself. Yeah, this was a big turning point, I thought, because she really just was a one-dimensional stock character at this point. And now we, the viewers, are starting to see her in a little more of a full picture. The relationship between Ted and Sharon is key to this episode, but we have a few other key stories as well. Jamie and his father, we've seen their troubled relationship in the first season, and we will remember that Ted actually hears his father's voice scolding Jamie when Ted has his breakdown early in season two. Jamie's father is a Man City supporter and yet still asks for tickets to the game. So Jamie asks Higgins for tickets, and Higgins actually wistfully calls out a theme we've been discussing all season, fathers and sons, he says. And we know there's going to be a showdown between Jamie and his father. We know it's coming. Yeah, I feel like 
Jamie and his dad is a thread that has not yet been pulled. So I think we have the feeling that this is all going to lead somewhere and it's probably not going to be good. And let's just discuss another sort of half story that appears in this episode. Roy is called in by his niece, Phoebe's teacher, who tells him that Phoebe has been swearing in class. It's clear that Roy's influence is to blame here, and he tells Phoebe that he's afraid that he's infecting her with the worst parts of himself. But, in fact, she explains that she is imitating him because she admires the way he stands up to bullies. And we'll remember how he stood up to Jamie over Jamie's bullying of Nate in the first season. And I think this story supports nicely the theme of kind of a positive guardian-child kind of relationship. Yes, and the theme of bullies getting taken down is going to play out elsewhere in this episode. And then we have the Sam and Rebecca story. They've been bantering on banter for what seems like weeks now, months maybe, and they finally do find each other. And this leads to a very wonderful date, but Rebecca clearly feels that it is not right for reasons of difference of age and also because Sam is quite literally her employee, but she's clearly smitten. So now back to the big game with Man City, the story that's been percolating behind the whole episode. Before the big game, we have one of these set pieces that we see in Ted Lasso. Here, Ted confesses to the Diamond Dogs, the coaching staff plus Higgins, that he did not suddenly depart from that previous game because he had food poisoning, but because he had had a panic attack and that it wasn't his first. This precipitates a whole cascade of confession from the others. This is a really cool scene, and I want to talk about this in more detail. And there has been this kind of giant build up to the game, and we do expect some sort of dramatic encounter, as we have been provided both in previous episodes of Ted Lasso and every sporting show you've ever seen. But here it's completely punctured. It's not a competitive encounter. It is, in fact, a drubbing from start to finish. It's simply Man City scoring goal after goal as Richmond collapses. And I like this because it almost says, that's not the story here, folks. <laughs> you thought that was the story. Once again, there's a little bait and switch going on in Ted Lasso, and the real stories are going to wrap up in a second. I don't know if we were led to believe this was going to be a Cinderella story, but that very much obviously is not what it turns into. So this then leads to all the other stories sort of wrapping up. Jamie's father can't help himself and enters the Richmond locker room after the game to taunt both Jamie and the team. This results ultimately in Jamie striking him. Jamie clearly feels at least complicated about this encounter, and Roy rushes to him, hugging him. Jamie has, after all, stood up to the bully. Head is watching carefully once again, and after the fight, he heads outside to call Dr. Sharon and tells her what we've maybe feared may be expected since season one. My father killed himself when I was 16. And the seed for this was planted all the way back in season one during the kind of uh, iconic darts game with Rupert when Ted revealed that he lost his father at age 16. And as we said, it's been playing out in this very complicated father and son theme that we've been charting all season. And I think we expect more revelations about this man and his relationship with Ted to come. We see now that Jamie's behavior is pretty clearly tied back to the treatment he has had at the hands of his father. And as they say on Pod Save America, a podcast I admire a lot, hurt people hurt people. And I think that's the story here. 
with Jamie and his father. The Ted story has a similar framing where we know that many things going on with Ted now are related to the suicide of his father when he was at the age of 16. So what we have here is a parallelism of people acting on the basis of trauma that they have either intentionally or unintentionally by the hands of their own dad. And now back to the Sam and Rebecca story. After the game, we see the press gathering, as they almost always do at least once during an episode of Ted Lasso. And this time it's Sam who's in front of the reporters discussing the tough loss. We see him clock Rebecca as she passes by. After all the bantering, he knows her very well, and he buries a message in his interview that will speak directly to her. When she gets home, she sees him in the interview say, we let the fans down, we lost very badly, but we tried. We gave it everything we had, and for me, that is okay, because what's worse for me is not to try at all. To try is scary, you know, because you can end up losing a lot but you have to put your heart out there. Otherwise, what's the point? I think we've heard something similar like this before. Who's he ventriloquizing here, Kathy? Well, this is sort of layered because I believe what he's doing is he's saying something very similar to what Rebecca herself says in the episode where she breaks up with her previous boyfriend, John. But really what's behind these words is Brene Brown, the social sciences researcher who has a lot to say about relationships and psychology, who has talked a lot about the necessity of being vulnerable to being hurt, being a precondition for anything really good or important to happen in your life. All right, great. That's our recap of season two, episode eight of Ted Lasso Man City. Kathy, what themes did you see in this episode? Well, I've got one big new topic to explore and then one smaller one. Oh, let's talk about the big one first. Okay. So I forecasted this one a little bit at the top of this episode where we mentioned that Dr. Sharon was speaking with her therapist. So the theme here, I think I would frame this as engaging in purposeful self-development through supervision. So what you could say Dr. Sharon is doing when she talks to her own therapist about what's getting in her way in her work with Ted is that this insight is not something that's available to her. She doesn't really know what's getting in the way of her work with Ted. And so this therapist, who sometimes could be referred to as a supervisor, is the one who provides this insight because the therapist knows Dr. Sharon pretty well and can see how Dr. Sharon might be getting in her own way. And I can relate to this because I'm an executive coach, and I know that when I'm working with the people who I'm coaching, my limitations as a coach are directly related to my limitations as a person. And so the extent to which I can step outside of myself and know myself and give myself advice, I can do that a little bit. But a coach that I admire says that all coaches should be in supervision, meaning all coaches should have coaches. And that person who's your coach supervisor can help you get unstuck when you're stuck with a coachee. So I think a lot of people could see how that would be helpful as a coach to have a coach supervisor. But it's even more interesting than that. A coach that I admire says that the best way to get better as a coach is to train to do coaching supervision. 
Because if you learn how to be a coach supervisor, you actually reflect on your own practice and you think about it in a holistic way from the outside. That sounds very similar to the fact that we know that the best way to learn something is to teach it. Forces you to think through not only the content, but it forces you to think through how people think about it. It's a metacognitive kind of approach. Absolutely. You've got it exactly right there, Mike. So that's interesting for therapists and coaches. What about people who aren't therapists or coaches? The point I think I'm winding myself down to here is that everybody can do something similar to this if they want to get better at the craft of what they do. If there's a thing that you do that you want to get better at, you can lean into being a supervisor of other people doing it, which brings me to something that I want to add at this point, which is the importance of understanding the distinctions between three activities that people do at work, supervision, management, and leadership. Could you provide some definitions for those three terms? Yes. In fact, I think defining these three terms in and of itself can be really interesting for people. I know that the first time I sat down to try to define these terms, I realized that I really didn't know the differences between these things. So let me offer up my definitions. I think other people may define them differently, but these are the definitions I work with. Supervision is about helping other people apply a skill that you have. So you do things to help build capacity in others to do a job that you could also do. So for example, if you work as a software engineer, this would mean looking over someone's shoulder as they write code and helping them write better code. So by watching somebody apply skills and helping them apply their skills, you enhance your own practice of that skill or craft. So in this example, you would probably get better at writing code. All right. So often the word supervision has sort of a negative connotation for a lot of people, but that formulation refurbishes its image somewhat. But what's management then? What makes that different? Okay. So supervision differs fundamentally from management. In the sense that for me, management is helping people who have skills that you don't have apply those skills to achieve results. And so you as the manager, even if you couldn't do what they're doing, you're removing the barriers to their success. So let's go back to the software engineering example. If you manage a software engineer, but you yourself are not a software engineer, you can't help them write their code, but you can check that the scope of their job is right. You can make sure they have the resources that they need. You could push back on overly aggressive deadlines. And none of this is going to make you a better coder. It's going to make you a better manager. Okay, great. So then what's that final turn? Leadership, how is that different from these other two concepts? Leadership differs from the other two because it's primarily about the future. It's about standing in the future and saying where the group needs to go next answering strategic questions like where to play and how to win. If you are a leader in software development, to continue our example, you'd look out at the market and decide what your software needs to do to stay ahead of customer needs and the competition, and then you would rally the group to get there. So why am I going through all these terms? In my coaching, I found that knowing when you are operating in each mode is helpful. Many people do not clearly have these distinctions, and they may not really be aware or even intentional about what mode they're in. Most people in most roles will need to operate in all three of these domains from time to time. 
But there's a lot of power in getting the balance right and not doing too much of the wrong thing. So one example might be, you know, some people are told by their boss that they need to elevate their game. They need to act in a more senior way. They need to have more gravitas and level up. Usually what this means is doing less of either supervision and management and more of what we would call leadership. All right. So that's a good roundup of these key ideas. Supervision, management, and leadership so important to the themes of coaching, I think. That's the big topic. You said you had a maybe a smaller topic as well. Yes. So I called this out too when you were doing the episode summary. That scene where Ted confesses to the Diamond Dogs about his panic attack, I think this raises an important issue that many of us might wrestle with from time to time, which is confessing to a big mess up at work. Should you do it? What if you got away with the mess up? Nobody noticed. Does it serve you in any way to call attention to it? Or even if people do notice the mess up, is it something that you should talk about with people? So let's just go back to what this scene is in the episode. Ted confesses that he had a panic attack and that's why he left the pitch previously. What happens when he makes this confession is it results in all these reciprocal confessions. Everybody just jumps in and talks about the thing that they messed up. I think they're interesting because I think they're related to who they are, right? So Higgins, straight up confession. I screwed up a trade deadline. Serious thing. Everyone's like, oh, okay, okay. And then what Roy does, though, is very interesting. He doesn't say, oh, I screwed this up. I won't do it again. He's like, I don't read your scouting report. He's not seeking forgiveness. He's just telling people that's the way it is. And then Nate is very Nate, right? It turns out, again, we have discovered this season, the person we thought Nate was and the person he actually is. There's some gap there. He shows here how, frankly, conniving he is. He says, I pretend to get ideas in the moment, but I've been thinking about them for months. I want them to look spontaneous. What's funny is the response is everyone like, is like, huh, that's actually a pretty good idea. Like, they might try that. And then finally, Coach Beard's a little, a little different, and we're going to see more of that in the next episode. And he says, there was one game this season where I was accidentally on mushrooms. Uh, <laughs> and this, of course... Raises the question, how did that happen accidentally? He drank from the wrong teapot. I love how you ran through that because I, I take the same thing away from that list that you do, which is all of these big mess ups are really just tied to who these people are as people, right? You could imagine that somebody with the busy life that Higgins has could miss a deadline here and there. And it feels right to forgive Higgins because I think everybody understands that he would never do something like that out of negligence. And Coach Beard is a weirdo and Roy is stubborn and Nate is trying to always manipulate how people think about him. So, yeah, it just totally lines up with who these people are. Yeah. So why do you bring this up? What I think is so interesting about this scene is that it has a paradoxical effect to what a lot of people would predict. A lot of people would predict that if you fess up to a big mistake at work, the trust will go down that other people will trust you less because they've just heard you talk about how you did something wrong or bad. But in this episode, we see that it paradoxically seems to increase the amount of trust that well, all of these coworkers have for each other. That makes me think about the trust equation and how maybe some of what we think of as trust, there are different founts to trust. It's not just all around your competence and credibility. Exactly. 
Yes. So I think that the trust equation is really helpful for thinking about how we get to this paradoxical effect here. It helps explain why in some circumstances admitting to a big mess up actually could increase trust. So back in season one, episode two, we talked about a book called The Trusted Advisor, where David Meister offers a helpful way of thinking about what results in more or less trust. And it's basically an equation. You can increase the amount of trust that others have in you if you demonstrate credibility by showing people that you have expertise, enhancing reliability by doing what you say you're going to do, and increasing intimacy. So getting to know people so that they have a sense of psychological safety in that they know who you are and how you're going to react in certain circumstances. And then you can reduce any of the positive effects of those trust-building activities by showing up in a self-oriented way where you show to others that you're really just out for the things that you care about. All right, so you would expect that admitting that you messed up would cause people to question your reliability and that this would decrease trust. You know, leaving the pitch in the middle of a match makes Ted a less reliable coach. But admitting to something personal helps people see you as human. And it shows that you have enough psychological safety to say something real. It means that you feel that you have an intimate relationship with them. And this may have the effect of making the other person feel that they are safe to make and admit mistakes. And this increases the mutual intimacy that you feel with each other and therefore the trust. And I think for the coaching staff in this episode, that's exactly how this plays out. They all admit mistakes and therefore all feel more intimacy and more trust with one another. So is what you're recommending that we spend our time admitting all our mistakes that we've made on a daily basis to each other? Yeah, no, that's not quite the implication that I would draw from this. You still need to make sure that you feel pretty confident that you're admitting to mistakes with a group of people where that's not going to be a terribly risky thing to do. For instance, if you know for certain that if you admit to a mistake with a group of people and you don't think anybody's going to reciprocate, then it's really not going to have the same effects that it did here. So we are all now a lot more intimate with Ted in the sense that we understand something very important about his personal history. And I am interested to see where it goes from here with Dr. Sharon and with Ted and their new intimacy, what kind of conversations are they going to have? And that does bring us back, I think. It circles back around to trust, right? In some ways, what allows Ted at the end of this episode to speak out, to, to tell this thing that he's really been hiding from Dr. Sharon, from us, for all these episodes, all this time, this tragic death of his father, that it was suicide. And it, it intimates that there may be something more here, too, to their relationship that he's going to reveal. And what allowed that to happen was this increase in trust. And maybe paradoxically, it seems like what allows him to trust Dr. Sharon more is seeing her weakness. Misses. Seeing that she has her issues too, which in some cases parallel his own and in some cases probably are uniquely hers. Yeah, intimacy, it's risky, but it can result in more trust and more trust can help people out. So that's our treatment of season two, episode eight of Ted Lasso, Man City. Coming up next, season two, episode nine, Beard After Hours. <laughs>